Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to this episode of Tatter. Tatter is largely recorded and edited in the digital media studios at Bates College, access to which is something I am very grateful for. But I do want to say that the views expressed in each episode of Tatter are in no way official views of Bates College. With all that said, here's Tatter. What you hear in the background is the Brooklyn-based band Slavic Soul Party. And I'm playing, with permission, their song titled Acapella, subtitled Have a Beer. That song is appropriate because this episode of Tatter is about beer, in particular the beer that's near and dear to my heart, craft beer. According to the Brewers Association, which is a not-for-profit trade association for craft brewers, overall U.S. beer volume sales were down by 1% in 2017, but craft beer volume sales were up by 5% that year, rising to 12.7% of the total U.S. beer market. Craft beer is available in many places around the country. Tap rooms, bars, concerts, beer festivals, just to name a few. The focus of this episode of Tatter is on the environment for women and people of color in the craft beer world. I had a chance recently to talk to two people with a wealth of knowledge on this topic. J. Nicole Jackson Beckham is a faculty member in communication studies at Randolph College who has written about beer and was just this spring named the new diversity ambassador for the Brewers Association. And Carla Jean Lauder is a beer writer out of Portland, Maine, who's been writing about beer since 2007 when she started a blog called The Beer Babe. She's currently the weekly beer columnist for Maine Today, and in her non-beer life, she works for a small company that helps to bring information about several NASA Earth and ocean science missions to the public. Our conversation is the basis of this episode, which is titled, Open Bar None. For me, my beer origin story is a pretty common one. Uh, In college, I began drinking beer. Um, Having grown up Baptist, I didn't drink it at all in high school, but I began drinking it in college, and it was macro brews. Uh, My first beer was Bud Dry, if you remember that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Laugh away. I'm I'm not proud. (laughs) I just Um, forgot about it. Yeah, well, you know, it, it was a forgettable beer, but it was my first beer. Uh, and then I went through a phase where I drank uh, what I thought to be fancier beer, so Killian's Red. Um, oh, and, yeah. And then in, in graduate school, I moved from Arkansas, where I grew up, to Columbus, Ohio. And I think my first, res- I would say, respectable craft beer was uh, a nut brown ale produced by one of the breweries uh, in Columbus. And soon thereafter, I, I was hooked. But I'm curious for each of you, in brief, what's your craft beer origin story? I did not actually drink a lot of beer in college. I thought what my friends were drinking in college uh, for beer was really gross. That's Carla, a.k.a. the Beer Babe. 
and I had, I had I wanted no part of that. Um, I drank other things mostly, but it wasn't until after college when, uh, you know, as as a new graduate with a job that barely paid the bills, I, I took on living with five other roommates uh, in this one house that was way too small for five people, uh, and we lived around the corner from what would now just be called, you know, like a craft beer store, but it, it was really a convenience store that stocked a lot of really good um, and whatever they could get local beer. Um, this was, you know, in the early 2000s. So there was beginning to be distribution from places like Rogue and Stone and, and uh, you know, these out-of-state breweries that were pretty cool. So I used to go and, and grab a six pack of something that none of us had had in the house. And we would all just kind of take one and, and just try to see what this whole, you know, microbrewery thing was about so we used to you know kind of say wow I, I have no idea what a Bach is and then we you know try to look it up and you know find out a little bit as we went but it was more just a kind of an exploration because there was really no you know it was a small investment right you know you take a home a six-pack and you have one and you give you know the other five to your five roommates mm-hmm. and you know you just kind of feel it out from there and I learned a lot uh, through that, but at the same time, nobody ever took any notes or anything when we did that. We just kind of did it informally. So my love of craft beer kind of came through that just experimentation. And then later I decided to actually try to document what I was tasting and, and exploring and kind of wanted to share that journey with other people, which is how I, how I got into the blogging. But for me, it was more about taking something off the shelf that we had no idea about and just kind of, you know, having a chance to try it, discuss it, love it, hate it, uh, and then pick something up new the next week. Yeah. Um, and now this is Jay Nicole Jackson Beckham, the diversity ambassador for the Brewers Association. I think I um, probably consumed a lot more beer than both of you in college. Um, <laughs> I kind of did the like sport volume drinking um, Mm. among the undergraduate crowd um, with funnels and all. And, um, but eventually ended up working in a, in a sports bar in the town where I went to school. And, um, you know, occasionally after a really long or arduous evening, right, we'd get that shift beer, like, good job, pick something off the draft list and not really being fairly adventurous, but Certainly being an opportunist, I just opted for the most expensive thing on the menu. <laughs> and and, and, and wh- where was this? What city? In Blacksburg, Virginia. Okay. And, you know, so this is the late 90s. Um, I think at that point I was like, oh, oh, you know, this is a different thing. Um, and pretty quickly, you know, realized there was a substantial upgrade for, you know, a little bit more investment. And then when I graduated, a friend um, gave me a membership to Michael Jackson's Beer of the Month Club. Oh, uh, cool. It was kind of my first, you know, it was like one of my best, first best, you know, I'm grown up gift. To be clear, this was not Michael Jackson, the king of pop, right? Correct. Correct. Michael Jackson, the um, fantastic um, beer and whiskey connoisseur. If I were going to make a bad joke, I could say the king of hop. There you go. I'll be here all week, folks. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And so interestingly, I think my um, origin story was not a particularly social one because, you know, the beer was delivered to my house and then I stuck it in my fridge and kind of made my way to it through uh, the case fairly solitary um, and really didn't get kind of exposure to the broader community or the 
broader culture of craft beer until I moved to San Diego in the early 2000s and um, then kind of just jumped in with both feet. It was a great place to be at that particular time if you were just coming to beer. When people go to to brew festivals and they look at who's pouring the beer or they go to a brewery and they look at who's out on the line brewing the beer, at least in my experience, the prototype is a white guy in his 20s or 30s with a beard, which none of us uh, fit that uh, profile. I I can't even grow a beard and I'm an African-American man. And so one of the things that I'm struck by is the whiteness of the craft beer industry. And so, first of all, I want to check my knowledge against what you know as people who are both quite, quite, quite knowledgeable about the beer industry. Am I wrong in characterizing it as an, an industry in which white men are overrepresented uh, on the production side? Well, I, I can say uh, anecdotally um, that there's definitely a mismatch between all of the people who could be enjoying beer and the people who are making it in terms of their racial and uh, even gender diversity. There's still a very small percentage of uh, brewers on the production side that are female. And I know that the uh, representation numbers for non-whites is very low as well. And so I've had that same kind of experience where you go in and that's kind of the people that you see. I was actually joking with some friends about this last night. There is a local bar that had a 10th anniversary party uh, for being in existence, and it's an amazing uh, craft beer bar up here, but it drew brewers from across the state to come and gather and and celebrate, you know, all the things that this particular bar had done for them. And it was a room full of people who looked eerily similar um, not to say that there isn't any, you know, diversity in our in our state, uh, you know, in terms of the production, but just the people who were really in charge, these breweries that have been around for 10 years, you know, really are very similar in their styling, in their age group even. Um, I mean, maybe that's just for the new generation of brewers, but there's definitely, a, I've been seeing a homogeneity there, uh, at least in the makeup of of some of the people that are involved in, on the production side in particular completely tongue-in-cheek, you know, academics, when we name our papers, a lot of us have to, like, throw that colon in there um, (laughs) and, um, you know, make it uh, laboriously long. And, you know, a paper I presented a couple years ago, uh, the pre-colon phrase was, don't get me wrong, I love white guys with beards. (laughs) Um, So... You know, that's certainly the perception and the stereotype, but... um, I also think it, it would be a little bit of a mistake to not acknowledge that there's been a lot of shift. Right? Oh, yes. Um, it's not that it's, I wouldn't say you're going to look around and say like, okay, this industry is representative of the, of the distribution we see in the general population of the U.S. or Canada, but um, there's certainly been a lot of movement since, you know, the early 2000s, right? When um, it really was um, alarmingly, you know, homogenous at the time. 
And I, and I would also just put on top of that, that in the early 2000s, the people who were attending these festivals and visiting these breweries were also alarmingly homogen- homogeneously men and yeah. white men. Um, I remember going to festivals in the early 2000s going, do I really belong here? <laughs> um, you know, as, as a, you know, just even a woman that likes beer, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't on somebody else's arm, you know, being dragged around. I was there, you know, my own volition. Um, so I think it was on both sides, but that has changed drastically. Right around that time, maybe a little bit later, I was um, in Boston attending a festival. Um, it was one of those things where you um, you attended, you got taste, and there were people kind of walking around with pitchers, kind of pouring taste, almost like, I don't know, almost like they had a tray of hors d'oeuvres. Yeah. Uh, and it just so happened that all the people pouring were women, and almost everyone in attendance was male. Uh, and all night long, people kept walking up to me and asking me for pours. <laughs> and I was like, I have nothing in my hands. Like, I'm not, I don't work here. You know, it was the, but, uh, you know, I don't think it, anything like that would happen now. No. Fingers crossed. Why does racial diversity, ethnic diversity, gender diversity of either the profile of brewers or the profile of consumers matter? Why should it be a goal of a brewery uh, to have a more diverse workforce or more diverse uh, clientele? As long as they're making good beer and they have a diversity of kinds of beer, why do those kinds of other why do those other kinds of diversity diversity matter? So the way that I have come to think of this is that what bothers me the most about the fact that, you know, beer seems to be lacking in diversity in, you know, gender and race is that there's absolutely no reason it should be. It's just, it's a, you know, it's a beverage. It's a thing that we all can enjoy. There's absolutely nothing inherent about the actual product that should make this any less enjoyable for anyone of any race or gender, you know, health issues aside, it is essentially, it's, it has a blank slate as far as its ID. So the fact that we are assigning, you know, these qualifications to it, you know, and, and that's been reinforced in advertising over time. You know, it's a man's drink, it's a blue collar drink or whatever, whatever tier you want to put it in. It's bothers me that that's even there. So, but going from a broader standpoint, more voices, more this is such a this is such a diverse industry in its creativity okay there are people doing things to beer that the people who invented beer you know hundreds of years ago would never have thought possible and it's reaching more audiences and it's bringing in um you know all kinds of other businesses to support it and i think that if you're limiting yourself to you know just you and the friends that you know that look like you you're missing out on this potential unlocked talent and unlocked um, support of what is becoming a really huge part of both an agriculture industry, a small business industry, and just something that should be representing the communities that it's actually serving. Um, There are so many jobs that come as periphery um, to the brewing industry that it just makes so much sense to have people who are participating in the brewing industry as well as around it be representative of the communities that are purchasing it and the communities that are put to work, you know, in the jobs that in the towns that are supporting it. And I just think that it, there's no, no one loses when you have more voices at the table. 
Kraft also has this kind of attitude that it's better than macro, right? It was a reaction to the macro beer where everything was homogenous and everything was mass marketed and, you know, adjuncts galore, you know, made to the cheapest, you know, ability possible. So people sought out a way to step away from that. Okay, we want our things handcrafted. We want to, we want more choice. We want more flavor. And in a way, rejecting all of that, you know, stereotypical advertising that was done by, you know, the big companies for a long time that was, you know, kind of reinforcing all these ideals. I actually think that having a, you know, more representative brewing industry is actually the final, <laughs> the final chapter is of completely, you know, re- rejecting the idea of that kind of, you know, you know, that monster corporate homogeneity. I don't know. That's, that's not how you say that, but <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it is, to me, it's something that should be the next logical step. No, similar to what you're saying, or maybe this is um, implicit in what you're saying. There are ways in which craft beer as an industry, in my experience, has presented itself as more progressive right. than other beers. Progressive in an anti-corporate sense, progressive in a pro-environmental sense. Yeah. So it only makes sense to be progressive in uh, the sense of striving for more diversity and inclusion. And I mean, and and brewers are also taking an active role, or at least trying to. So a lot of breweries are are investing in their communities, in their neighborhoods. Right. You know, a lot of people are um, putting back into the communities where they've put themselves. Um, you know, significant investments, and it's it only makes sense to also invest in the people as well. There, I think there's a spectrum of reasons as to why it's a good idea. I think Carla spoke spoke to several really eloquently, so I'll try not to repeat her. But I think, you know, on the practical side, it's good business, right? Um, Absolutely. You know, in the data that the BA put out in 2006, you know, 57% of drinkers are millennials, 24% of craft drinkers are Gen Xers, and uh, of the entire population, 75% of um, weekly craft beer drinkers are male. Oh, 60% identify as white, um, only 10%. African-American, only 9% Asian and other, right? But I think if you just take a quick look at the data, um, it's not just painting a picture of a young white male industry. It's also saying um, if this is such an overrepresented population in the consumer base, which you have is over 6,000 American breweries competing for a fairly narrow segment of American drinkers. And, you know, what we're seeing now is, we continue to add breweries and add breweries and add breweries, but the sector is not growing quite as fast, right? So competition will be higher as we continue to add breweries. Um, And I think the number of closures you see are kind of bearing that out a little bit, right? So it it just kind of makes sense. Like why, why fight over this, all the same fish in the pond? Mm -hmm. Um, If you want to grow and you want to continue to run a sustainable business, then you stop competing for the the segment that's probably oversaturated. You go find some from new customers. Um, And I know that's really bottom lining and pragmatic, but it does make just really good sense. So when you look back and think about the history of the beer industry in the U.S. in general and the craft beer industry in particular, what do you think are some of the factors that have been barriers 
to entry by people of color as participants in the brewing industry? Well, if you're looking at the craft beer industry specifically, yeah, I mean, and this this is something I've actually written about quite a bit. Um, You know, at that moment where craft is kind of first bubbling up um, in the U.S., 1960s and 1970s, craft was um it is was such an entrepreneurial moment you know industry at the moment and not that's not to say it isn't anymore but if you think about it then you like small scale brewing equipment just just doesn't exist right like this is why all our great craft origin stories are about um people welding you know milk vats together um the the business model didn't really exist. Um, you know, you're not walking into a bank and saying, I'm opening a small brewery and getting a loan um, in the 1960s and 70s because it's a, it's a risky venture that absolutely no one's heard of yet. And so at that time, you really had to have access to capital, um, either, you know, personal or through family. You had to have a little bit of a freedom, right? Access to property. So there's just some um, social conditions, access to expertise, right? All the guys, again, who kind of start craft at that moment are um, retired engineers or have training from the military or attended Stanford. So there's, there's just a lot of social and financial resources that you need to get into craft early that, you know, if we're talking about, you know, the back end of civil rights America, like there's not a whole lot of black and brown people in the U.S. that would have these types of resources at the time, right? Lots of folks won't have them now. So I think that's a massive barrier because I think you had to be a, you had to enjoy a, a particular set of advantages and privileges to even get into the industry early. And then much like lots of other things, once there's already been kind of a precedent established whether it's a way of doing business or a particular identity or ethos that defines the industry, it's even riskier to be someone who doesn't fit that bill coming in. Yeah. Um, just kind of jumping off of that, the other thing that I, I believe um, occurred to kind of as a self-fulfilling prophecy too, was that the people who then began to participate in craft beer, the ones that were showing up to breweries and trying to new beer, you know, kind of were the same people that would then go on to become home brewers and then go on to open the next generation of breweries. So you had this kind of almost, you know, club of folks that were kind of paving their own way forward, you know, where there weren't a lot of new people coming in. It was the same people who had tried that, you know, pioneer guys beer. They, you know, they grew up drinking Geary's and then they decided to make their own. And then they have a new group of people that are, that are drinking their beer and they're all kind of in that same social circle. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's that kind of, um, you know, self-perpetuating thing, which, you know, once you figure out, especially this industry, it's a very social industry. People are, you know, friends with brewers. You know, it, this is not a manufacturing, you don't know who manufactured, you know, half of the things that you put in your body at any given day. But you probably, you know, if you're into craft beer, you might know who the brewer is, which is very weird. You know, everybody knows everybody kind of thing, but you have to be in that group that knows everybody first. Right. You know? you know, there are a lot of things that happen kind of at the same time and in the following decades within the black community itself that I think erect barriers that operate just as effectively. You know, I think 
same time, 1960s and 70s, right, this is when most of the major beer companies in the U.S. are making a very concerted effort to market, you know, high-gravity, low-cost, big-container malt liquor to urban uh, and African-American communities, right? Did, did, I, did I mention that this episode is sponsored by St. Ides? <laughs> Sorry, sorry. You know, and I think, you know, anybody who was around um, to see, you know, the St. Ives commercials um, and anything that came after it, you know, you know that there is a particular type of black masculinity that really gets married to that particular beer, in quotes, product. And I mean, if you think about how many um, times references to... um, Specifically, malt liquor are embedded in song lyrics, which um, now I'm coming to understand many of those were actually paid product placements. But once you get to the 1980s and the 1990s, I I think you very intentionally see a generation of particularly black men who felt constrained by that particular notion of black masculinity and kind of pushed away all of the trappings of that identity forcefully, right? Like I'm going to wear a tailored suit and not baggy jeans. And, you know, I'm not going to put my car on 22s. I'm going to just drive an understated Lincoln, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of the, t- the turn to premium liquor was in some ways a way for people to particularly upwardly mobile young blacks to express a kind of desire to push that particular notion of blackness away, right? Um, That that I'm not going to define this. And I think for a lot of people, beer is still a hard jump because that, you know, there's still a a fairly strong residue of that connection. In many domains, there's often what's called a critical mass problem where until there's a critical mass, it's really uncomfortable to be there. Uh, but it's a kind of catch-22 because in order to build that critical mass, you need people who have been willing to be those trailblazers. So to be more concrete, I could imagine that even for a woman who wants to be wants to break into the craft brewing industry, even for a person of color who wants to do so, who has the financial resources, the the experience, the knowledge, the skill to do it, if they see it as still uh, a white bros club, it may not feel like the kind of profession. And you talked about how social it is. That so, that very social nature, I can imagine, could make it feel like you're going to be at the margins given your gender or your race or ethnicity. Am I overestimating the extent to which that critical mass issue is, a, is an additional challenge apart from the ones you've described? I, I definitely can see that, f- at least with women participating in beer, that we have kind of made it, I feel like we've made it over that critical mass hump where it's okay. not as weird as when I was going to ACBF in, you know, 2003 and I was the only girl who wasn't someone's girlfriend there, you know, that that wasn't being dragged around. The festival attendance is the biggest indicator for me that there's at least some, there's definitely, it's not a weird thing anymore, in my opinion, to see a woman in a beer tasting room with actually a group, other group of women, her, you know, female friends, male friends, whatever, um, enjoying beer. That's not as odd anymore as it used to feel like. So I'm not, I, just, I'm not just talking about consumers, I'm talking yeah, about producers. Right. 
And I do think that um, one of the things that has helped um, women on the producer side, however, is that there have been organizations, particularly um, the Pink Boots Society, that has been created specifically to have a camaraderie among the women who are working in the industry um, so that they can, um, you know, actually, you know, have someone that they can relate to that is more experienced than them, that can mentor them. They've had scholarships and things of that nature where it makes them feel less isolated and alone. Um, And I, you know, and I don't have, um, you know, access to all of their data, but I do know that things of that nature have, have made that isolating feeling of being the only woman brewer or the woman brewer or that lady brewer, you know, feel a bit less daunting than it was. Um, that's not to say that it's not still, you know, a hard place to walk into, um, or a harder position to get if you're not already kind of in that club. But I, I feel like that, that at least on the, and I, you know, and I can only speak really to the, to the gender side, it's being worked on. We're getting over that hump, but that was a, that was a long time coming. And I don't know which side that came from though, if it came from the participation side or if it came from the production side or if they were doing that independently, you know what I mean? It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's hard to tease out, you know, where we are other than knowing that it's getting better. Everything you just said really rings true, both in terms of feeling like we may have kind of, as far as gender is concerned, at least, we've, yeah. we may have reached that um, critical mass and the importance of pink boots in not only making sure that women have com- camaraderie and know that they're, as a community of female producers in the industry, but also in working to create that pipeline. Um, yes. You know, I remember, gosh, uh, I think six or seven years ago, Pink Boots was, you know, offering scholarships, but I think they just had a couple. Um, as of CBC on in May, I think they have in the high teens, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, didn't, I don't remember it, but I remember thinking, wow, they're, they're kind of getting up towards 20 scholarships a year, which um, I think it used to be just like, you know, a handful, two or three. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they've really kind of doubled down on providing um, scholarship opportunities, both for aspiring brewers and for women who've already been in the industry. Is there anything um, analogous to pink boots for brewers of color? Not that I know of. You refer to the CBC. I assume that's the Craft Brewers Conference? Correct. So at the CBC and Brew Expo America, you recently gave a talk titled, quote, A Brewery for All, Tactics for Being Inclusive and Building Diversity. Could you talk about one or two of the tactics that you discussed uh, apart from, say, Pink Boot Society, which we've heard about? Yeah, sure. Um, let, me, um, let me start by saying I didn't choose that title. Uh, <laughs> and, and had I, but had I had a chance to choose it, I might have chosen strategies rather than tactics. Um, okay. this, I always think of tactics as like very specific yep. um, and strategies as a little bit more um, I guess, a metal level. Yep. Uh, so I probably would have used the word strategies. So a little bit of context, the, the, my appointment as ambassador happened, I think, two weeks before CBC. Um, so it was a very kind of quick turnaround and an early introduction. Yep. Um, and so, you know, I gave the talk without having um, had the opportunity to meet with the diversity committee, which is um, a committee um, recently formed at the Brewers Association, from whom I will be getting um, some guidance and some specific charges. So 
uh, it was a bit of a hi, I'm here talk, if that yeah. makes sense, and a little probably less specific than um, upcoming talks will be. However, for me, um, I think my goal was to start off by making some attempt to shift the conversation around this word diversity. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I, in the kind of social media blow up after VA made the announcement, um, right, there's all this chatter. And um, one of the things that really struck me in both the kind of positive and negative feedback to, um, to the appointment was that I think a lot of people either misunderstand or don't put much thought into unpacking what it is you mean when you say diversity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's, that's where a lot of my time on the talk was spent kind of stretching the moment for, for those in attendance and having us kind of really take a serious and measured look at what it is uh, we're saying we're going to do and how we're going to do it. And so some of the broader strategies that I brought were, you know, first of all, um, have a conversation, right? Define what you mean when you are saying diversity. Um, and rather than thinking of, you know, check boxes or, you know, I just got to get this person to hear, um, you know, think about it more strategically in terms of your goals as an organization. And so um, my approach to this position and to talking um, to folks in the industry really will be about um, this is not a tack on gesture or, um, you know, a hopeful shot in the dark. Like this needs to be something that you build into your organizational goals, um, something that you strategically plan for, something that you delegate responsibility for, something that you make multiple attempts at if you're not successful and something that's part of your assessment strategy. You know, and I think the, the an analogy that I like to make is, you know, a lot of people talk about success, but you can never address a diverse industry like craft beer and presume to tell everybody how they're going to be successful because one brewery is going to define success as staying small and sustainable. Yeah. Right? Another brewery is going to define it as exponential growth and selling to the highest bidder. And so, you know, one of my, my big goals is to get people to think critically about what they mean and frame it in terms of a collective goal that they can um, take as seriously as sales or, or marketing, right? I think something else that occurs to me is that no matter what we see, whether uh, you run into a situation where you feel a little bit left out or you get frustrated by some microaggression or some label pisses you off, overwhelmingly, this is a fantastic community. Um, oh, yeah. These are welcoming people. And a lot of the issues that I see are people who really intend to change. Um, they want it to change, right? Like this, overwhelmingly, I'm not seeing an industry of people like schluffing this off or putting up their arm like, ugh, don't tell me what to do. There are a lot of brewers out there that are like, yeah, I want to do this. And honestly, I just don't know what's going on. Yep. Right. Um, and so in some ways, um, why should we care? Because these are people who want to do this, right? And this is um, an opportunity for a person who has a 
a strong set of personal ethics to bring their organizational ethics in line with what they feel. Right. Um, and so, you know, I think for me, that's one of the wonderful things about um, getting to be acting the role that I'm acting with the UA, the BA, you know, I'm not having to march around convincing people that this is a good idea. Right. Lots of people already are there and they're just saying, okay, I need help because I don't want to do this inauthentically. I don't want to just, you know, make pink beer or have hip hop night and think that's going to draw people in. Like they want to make serious, sustained and meaningful efforts to, to open up their businesses. And that's, you know, that's rare. You don't see that in a lot of industries. So I want to set up the next part of this interview by talking about a couple of components of the marketing of beer, and that is the brand name and the label. And I'm going to go through a few examples. Uh, first, out of Northwest Brewing Company, they have uh, Hoppy Bitch IPA and Crazy Bitch Double IPA. The first label features a stylized drawing in red of a woman's form with devil's horns. And the second is similar, but the female figure has wild hair. Uh, another company, Midnight Sun Brewing, uh, has as the name of their Belgian triple, Panty Peeler. And then there's the now closed Route 2 Brewery, which featured the beer Stacked, with a very buxom woman uh, on the logo, and Leg Spreader was a different beer of theirs. I'm going to go back to Jay first. My sense from what you were saying is, Labels like that are coming from brewers that are at the margins in that, 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 that they're not broadly representative of where most craft brewers want to be. Is that, is that a fair characterization of what uh, I heard you saying? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and I think if anything, the, this kind of trend or these kind of decisions bother me not necessarily because of their content, but because they are um, disproportionately, you know, defining the optics for the industry. And, you know, there are a lot of brewers who would find such a decision not just detestable, but frankly stupid. And it bothers me that these people are getting, right, so much airtime and so much line space because I don't think it's representative of what the industry is doing as a whole. Well, speaking of the industry, I know that the Brewers Association has added some elements to the marketing and advertising code to address this sort of thing. Am, am, I, am, I, am I right about that? And if so, do you see that that's going to actually do anything to push more of these uh, potentially offensive labels uh, out of the marketplace? Uh to the, I don't, you know what? I'm not sure. Right. Um, that's a hard call. You know, yep. I think whether it's going to make a difference, I mean, to some degree, if, if you're going so far or trying this hard to make that joke, you know, or to like put that forward, like, you know, like, I'm just like, okay, I guess you're just really damn committed to like making that joke about lady parts. So knock yourself out. Right. Um, because like what, to some degree, that there's not going to be a lot of change um, if you're just that invested in making such a decision. I think for me, it's the ones that are kind of on the margins, right? Mm -hmm. um, where 
you know, if the entire staff of your brewery consists of three or four guys who went to college together and often drink a lot, I do think there's a lot of possibility where like, oh yeah, this is what we're going to name it and this is what it's going to look like. And if you don't kind of just put it out there, right. Um, and, you know, hey, ask that female friend you have what she thinks, you know, or maybe ask yourself the question, you know, if I were drinking out of this can at Thanksgiving, would my mom look mortified, right? I think there are some, you know, just checks, simple checks that maybe aren't happening or maybe now are happening. But, um, you know, when you're talking about somebody who wants to, you know, talk about their beer as like, you know, God, what? There was one that was a prom night cherry or a leg spreader, right? I mean, for me, that's, um, that's, that's a commitment to making a decision that I think a lot of people are like, okay, well, I hope that, you know, doesn't come back and bite you as hard on the ass as I think it might. Yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, and I, again, I, like, I'm not really in the business of policing people's decisions. Um, so I don't. You know, I I don't pay attention and I won't spend my money, right? Um, but I also think it's absolutely absurd for people to make these decisions and then freak out when, mm-hmm. when somebody res- responds to it publicly. Like, that's absolutely insane to me. Um, <laughs> and it seems like that happens quite a lot, right? Like, you go through all the effort to, like, make this, you know, third grade level potty joke on your beer can and then you freak out because someone calls you on Twitter, like, okay, you... You invited that, right? So, Carla, I'm going to throw it over to you and give you give you a chance to add anything you want to. And 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 once you've done that, the thing that I would also ask you is whether you see the presence of such labels, and perhaps it sounds as if they're perhaps rare within the industry. Is that really a barrier to? more women consuming craft beer or is that not really a barrier of, of any of any significance? Sure. Well, first, um, I have to say that I, I agree wholeheartedly with a lot of what Jay said there. My, my head has been bobbing up and down and I know it's a podcast, so you all haven't <laughs> been able to see that. Duly noted. Um, but uh, I, I would definitely concur that, you know, some of these worst examples, you know, the, that we're seeing really are not representative of what most people are doing. And I think that's what incenses me more they're just so out of step with what the rest of the industry is doing. It's as if like, you know, that that decision got made in a garage after six beers and it made somebody snicker and they stuck it on the label. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also do think that there is a absolutely a spectrum of these things. So sometimes, you know, when the, when the name of the brewery is literally sick and twisted, then I know that I'm not going to actually make any inroads with having a conversation there. They have made that decision. They have made that decision fully to that. That is their identity. Okay. But when occasionally when there's a brewery that comes out with a label, that's it's not in line with what they've done before, or maybe it's a, a, got a double meaning to the name that they weren't aware of. That's kind of when I see an opportunity to engage and have a conversation. So I do like to talk about these things. And I know there is a concern about making it seem as if they're everywhere and it's pervasive and it's terrible, but I do like to progress the dialogue because even if I don't get anywhere with that brewery, if I'm having a discussion about a label on Twitter or if I'm having, or if I contact a brewery and, you know, and, and share, you know, what they've responded, there are other brewers or 
that may have been thinking about a name like that, that may, you know, be learning about what the, what these labels mean or, or how it makes people feel. And I, mm-hmm. I don't want to give up the trying to have these conversations, maybe not even for the person I'm directly talking to, but to the other people who are listening to understand that as participants in this industry and as brewers and producers in this industry, that that's not the social norm. And then if we can call that out in some way that says, hey, um, you know, this is objectifying and, it, and I think that that's kind of uncomfortable. You know, why did you name your beer this? Or, you know, this is really not in line with the rest of your labels. You know, is there a backstory here, you know, to, to, what, you know, to know what's up with this, you know, kind of punny name that went too far? Um, and, and there have been definitely times where the brewery has um, at least claimed to, or, and half the time I believe them, that they didn't realize how it could come across. And it's that same thing that you were mentioning, Jay, you know, having someone that's not like you review your labels or your ideas or, you know, just, you know, the names that you're tossing around is hugely valuable. Because I don't know everything about every culture in the whole planet. Right. I don't know everything about what it's like to be a man or trans or gay. You know, so it's one of those things that if there are other groups that this is, again, about having more voices in the industry. If there are other people that you can either employ or, you know, ask to be sounding boards about these things, then you everybody benefits from that. Right. Um, and then <laughs> the other thing... Uh, is the ones that that really make themselves narrow like that. <laughs> I, I once wrote an article, and I think I put a line in there that says, like, breweries uh, cannot survive long-term on bro- bros alone. Because it's not a good long-term strategy to just narrow and narrow and narrow your, arc- your market. I just, I don't, I don't see that, that, speci- that level of specificity helping anybody at this point. Um, I, so I'm going to cut you off. Go no, ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just saying, I mean, I, that's so, that's so on the nose, you know, in, this is already an industry that has some inherent challenges in terms of being associated with a product that does pose real health risks, right? right. Um, and real social risks um, when abused. And, uh, you know, it astonishes me that anybody can make like trying to make a joke about like sexual violence or Mm -hmm. um, the kind of, you know, quote unquote lubricating effects of alcohol when you are already facing that. Um, Right. That just seems insane to me. Right. Like, cause I'm just like, well, lots of people are afraid about alcohol because it has these like proven effects that are horrible and negative. Let's make a joke about it on my camera. (laughs) Right. Uh, It just seems like astonishingly bad business. Yeah. And uh, to go to your second half of your question, Michael, is the presence, you know, of these labels really that, you know, uh, acting as a barrier for for uh, women who want to participate and enjoy beer? The way that I picture this is what it, it, you have to imagine what it may feel like to be what I call a craft curious consumer. I'm sure yeah. some marketing somewhere has an official definition for that. But my my thing is like, okay all of us who are having these deep conversations are really the ones that are really in the beer. Like, you know, right. We're these huge fans, but there's a whole other group of people that are craft curious. They may have, you know, tried a blue moon. They may see that their friends keep bringing different beer every time you go hang out and have a barbecue, you know, they might be interested in, in possibly checking out craft beer as a thing. And if you, as a woman walk into a beer store and it's got, you know, a couple of, aisles that are all you know the cans and bottles you know from the local breweries 
And half of those cans and breweries have some big breasted woman on them or have a name that's punny about losing your virginity on prom night. It's very easy not to, it's not that necessarily that makes you, you know, repelled immediately, but it it gives you the signal that this is not for me. Right. Right. So it's very easy to turn back around and we've, and there is, you know, some, a lot of talk in the craft beer industry of people losing market share to things like spirits and, and wine, because those places actually feel more comfortable for people. Like, you know, most of the women that I know have absolutely no problem picking out a bottle of wine or going down to a, you know, wine tasting at a local thing, but they may not be familiar enough to go into a beer store. And when they do, if they see all of this kind of obvious pandering towards male, the male gaze, they're going to go, oh, well, I don't really belong here then. <laughs> and, and whether that's, you know, implicit or explicit, you know, it, it may just gnaw on them that, eh, maybe I'll just stick to wine or, or maybe I'll just have a, you know, a mixed drink or a cocktail instead. And I think that that, <laughs> that initial loss of a customer is not just the loss of a customer of the brewery with the boob label, right? right? It's the loss of the customer of the brewery next to it that doesn't have that on it. You know, it, it's the whole industry that has just watched someone go, eh, that, I guess this isn't made for me. And I, you know, and I do say, yeah, they're outliers, but there's a lot of lazy sexism too. Yeah. The blonde ale thing drives me crazy. If you have a blonde ale and you don't put a blonde woman on it, thank you. And, I, you know, I'll buy you a beer next time I see you. Because it's, um, you know, there's, a, there's this pervasive and it's low level, right? It's not necessarily a rape joke. It's, <laughs> it's right. just a really attractive cartoon of a blonde girl on a beer called a blonde ale or it's called crazy blonde or whatever. And it's just so lazy (laughs) and, and, you know, and old that it just makes me go. And I, I really like Jay, your, uh, your Thanksgiving mom check also, (laughs) Uh, you know, do you want to be bringing that home or over to somebody else's house? You know, if you're a woman or if there's going to be women at the party, it's just, it's so self-limiting. And, but I really worry about turning away that craft curious consumer who could be contributing more towards that market share that craft occupies versus the spirits versus the cocktails versus the wine. And if we don't pay attention to that, I think that's going to be a long, another long-term issue that whole, you know, we can't survive on just the white dudes alone. I don't want anyone to think that the conversations that, you know, I start, you know, and, and I, you know, the pots that I stir online aren't done out of love for this industry. They are. It, it is, it's in an effort to make everybody here, you know, better and, you know, to bring beer to all, you know, I, I want to have these discussions to see what, these things mean to folks and see how it can impact, you know, the audiences that we don't have already. Um, you know, things like the marketing and things, um, you know, like breweries, you know, taking certain, certain actions that, that seem exclusion, exclusionary um, to certain groups. And I, I just, you know, I, I think that there's a tendency to think that we're all, you know, raising our twit forks and coming at angry mobs. And, <laughs> right. and, uh, and it's not an angry mob. Uh, to me, it's a conversation worth having out of love for the industry. And I want to keep having those conversations. And I would be happy to keep having those conversations with anybody who wants it. I think considering the kind of broad political climate, at least in the U.S. right now, 
when it's coming, when it comes to issues of inclusion or equity or social justice, um, it's very easy to take the temperature at any given moment and, and lose hope. It's a, it's a challenging time to kind of uh, be someone who gives a shit, if that yep. makes sense. Yep. Um, and I think in so many ways, you know, since I kind of discovered the world of craft beer, um, this has been a, a community of people that has this uncanny ability to infuse me with hope um, or at least gets me to kind of suspend my cynicism uh, so that I can um, believe that, you know, your efforts can, can come to fruition in ways that matter. And even though there's, you know, we're talking about it quite a lot and we've, we've talked about issues and we've talked about barriers and we've talked about um, unfortunate choices. um, In spite of all of that, I still believe that craft beer tends to be this industry that is really um, positively um, a policy and thought leader for small business and for an industry as a block, right? And I think we spoke to that a little bit when you're saying um, craft beer tends to be more progressive, right? And so I have a whole lot of hope that just as craft breweries tend to be, uh, you know, small businesses that present unique models of community interaction or present unique solutions to a sustainable operation, I think this is just another opportunity for craft beer to be an industry leader and present unique solutions to tackling the very difficult work um, of diversity inclusion in a country that has a lot of historically embedded social stratification. That's it for Tatter. I want to sincerely thank both of my guests. Thanks to J. Nicole Jackson Beckham, and good luck to her as the Brewers Association Diversity Ambassador. And thanks to Carla Jean Lauder, the beer babe. Good luck to her in her writing. I wish all the best to them, and all the best to everyone else who is a champion for craft brewing being the best industry it can be, and who agrees with us that an important part of that effort is to be diverse and inclusive of people from all races, ethnicities, and genders. Check out the Brewers Association at www.brewersassociation.org. Check out Pink Boots, the Pink Boots Society at www.pinkbootssociety.org. And as always, please follow Tatter on Twitter at Tatter underscore rags. Finally, thanks to Slavic Soul Party for letting me use acapella, have a beer. Check them out at SlavicSoulParty.com. And if you're ever in New York on a Tuesday, go to Barbess in Brooklyn at 9 p.m. to catch their show. For now, thanks for listening and be well. (laughs) 